Well, if you guys have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Judges again, and Judges chapter 6, and I want to try to move into some new material. I appreciate the opportunity to come back right away this week and finish this up. And, uh, but I do like to kind of review, um, because there's more people here than there was last week, by the way. Can I ask the question, where were you last week? Um, but one of the things that we shared last week is we talked about um, the process by which God works miracles. And last week I just shared that the Lord is really wanting to not just have us understand that He does miracles, but that we understand how to cooperate with Him so miracles can happen. And I started at the beginning last week out of 1 Corinthians 12, and we just kind of walked through uh, the manifestations of the Spirit there that are mentioned, and there are nine that are mentioned there. And one of the phrases that is mentioned in the King James, New King James, and that's an accurate translation of the Greek, is that it's not just the gift of miracles or a gift of miraculous powers. That's the way the NIV translates it. But I shared with you that it says the working of miracles. And just for a simple guy like me, I need to say, well, what does that mean? It means that miracles have to be worked. Now, miracles are a culminating moment, a culminating event where people say it's a miracle. You know, and it's undeniable and people stand in wonderment and awe of what God did. It was kind of that breakthrough. And I like to use that, that phrase, culminating moment, where it comes all together, and God, we see His breaking intervention into a circumstance. But what I shared last week, that most miracles, if you can look behind the scenes, God works them through a process and so there are many smaller events and smaller things that are occurring where God begins to build a momentum for miracles to happen. And because the body of Christ, sometimes we, we don't understand how God initiates the process for a miracle to happen, maybe even years before the miracle occurs. And most of those initiating processes are with people. And I shared last week, I said, many of us do not know that right now these kids that just went to camp or back in, in children's church right now, God is in a preparatory process with them. He's initiating, initiating things in their life to enlarge capacities within them so that He can engage them and that God is going to bring their destinies in alignment with moments, kairos moments, in God in the future in history and use them to work miracles. And God will position them and will get them to participate with Him. And not only just the kids, but I think that it's easier for us to look at the kids and we see that great potential. But every one of us God has in processes right now to culminate in miraculous things in our life. But some of us, because we're just always saying, God, we need you to do a miracle. And he's saying, Lynn, I need you to do a miracle. And Eric, I need you to do a miracle. And we're saying, God, we need you to do a miracle. And he's saying, Michelle, I need you to do a miracle. Yes. Do we get it? That God initiates, but we must facilitate. And so last week what we did was uh, there were three points that I wanted to try to work through in this message. And one was that whenever God does a miracle, He will choose a person to do it through. He will always have an instrument of His power in which that power will be displayed through. And so I said, God always will select the right person or personality God will always get the person in the right position and then we must offer to God the right participation and then that equals something miraculous. But I also said that every one of those things, and, and you know, the title of this message, you know, if you go to the website and re-listen to it, I, they asked me, they said, what are you title? I said, I'm going to call it the right stuff, you know. 
we're always looking for people that God that will have the right stuff that God can use. But what is counterintuitive is what we think is the right stuff is not always what God considers the right stuff. And so when we talk about the right personality and the right position and the right participation, all of you are going to go, okay, he's going to talk about I need, to, I need to be more sanctified, I need to be more holy, I need to pray more, I need to fast more, I need to do this, I need to do that. And see, this is a danger that we fall into because we think that miracles occur by principle. And I say they don't occur by principle. They occur through processes in relationship with people. Miracles are done out of relationship with God. And also, God always engages us in ways in which it's going to be counterintuitive to our wisdom and our understanding because his thoughts are so much higher and his ways are so much higher. So instead of this being a message where everybody gets under pressure, well, I want to do miracles. And so I've got to, you know, raise up the standard and meet the bar and pass the exam to where I can do them. Let me just relieve you and let you enter into the promise of God's rest. When I talk about right personality and right position and right participation. Let me tell you, everyone, probably 100% in this room this morning are already there. To some level or to some degree, you've met the qualification. I'm just saying God wants to deepen that position or deepen the vulnerability of your participation. And yes, your personality already meets his grid because this is what I want to tell, tell you about the right person that God chooses to do miracles. Everybody ready? So if you missed last week, this is the point. God will use you to do miracles in spite of who you are. God chooses people and personalities in spite of who they are. Not because of who they are, in spite of who they are. Now, what we did, and we're going to read this verse again, but in Judges, we looked at Gideon, and we said that when the angel of the Lord engaged him, that, you know, he was, he was in this place where he was being a survivalist. He was a prepper. Can you say amen? He was back behind the wine press, and they had gotten a little bit of harvest, and he was trying to protect that harvest from the Midianites. And so he was trying to just survive. He was trying to feed his family. Didn't look like a courageous act. It didn't look like he was valiant or a mighty warrior. But God declared that over him, said, you are going to be a mighty warrior. You are a courageous man. And, uh, you know, here he is doing his survivalist deal, trying to make a little flour so the, the family could bake some bread and they could live. But I shared that that's where most preachers stop when we come to, to teaching and preaching this message. And out of the message, we talk about, you know, God speaking over us, seeing things about us that we don't see in ourselves. And uh, God speaks and sees us according to our prophetic potential. But I said, I want to go a little further because there was a reaction to the angelic visitation that Gideon had, and when the Lord declared this through the angel, the message of God through the angel to Gideon, there was a reaction that he had. And the reaction was not, you know, here I'm your servant. Yes, I've always had dreams that I was going to be a mighty warrior. I've had fantasies. I, I did role playing when I was a kid, won many battles, you know. I always saw myself as a general. Thank you, God, for sending an angel to confirm what I felt about myself. That wasn't his reaction. And this is where I want you to see that he was not only physically natural in a difficult situation, emotionally and spiritually, he was not in a good place. Let's go ahead and read it, and then I'll, I'll go on, because you guys will say that my sermon's not legal unless we read a text. Okay, here we go. Verse 11, and the angel Lord came. Judges 6, 11. And the angel Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, 
The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And verse 13, this is Gideon's response. He said, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, I want you to hear this. He said, you said that you're with us? You're calling me a courageous warrior, a mighty man, but I've got to struggle with the first thing you said. You say the Lord is with us. And he says this, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and save or deliver Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Now, one of the things that I said is that many times God will use us in spite of us. And when I say that, there are times in which our faith is tested. And when our faith is tested, what is exposed is the vulnerability of that faith and the mixture sometimes of the questions and the doubts that we have about the circumstance into relationship of what God has revealed himself as and to us. God says, I delivered you with outstretched hand, took you out of Egypt. I did it with signs and wonders. The previous generation told those Bible stories to their kids. God is a miracle working God. He is all powerful. He took down the greatest empire of its day, broke it, weakened it to where Pharaoh had to let us go. That's the kind of God you serve. And so this was the message he had grown up with. But the circumstances that he found himself in, there was an absence of that display of God's power in that moment. And so it caused him to question, is the God that was with my ancestors, with my grandpa and with grandma, is he the same today? And I find that what happens is that God in his providential sovereignty is a part, because he's the author and the de developer of our faith, he is a part of trying to bring those questions to the surface so he can legitimately give us answers. Matter of fact, I believe this. Sometimes questions are not a contradiction that says that we're in unbelief, but it's evidence of the presence of faith because when there's questions, we're wrestling with God and His promises. Those that are in unbelief walk away and said, eh, don't believe that stuff anymore. But when we have questions, and I've got questions today, I want to say, I want to know the God that my grandpa knew and the power that was in display in that generation and the stories that I was told as a child. I'm a Gideon that says, God, you have promised that you are with us. If you are with us, I want to know you as the God that also is as powerful today as you were for grandma and grandpa. And so God, instead of him get, getting offended at us, in spite of those questions, he says, I'm going to take the questioning that you have, the wrestling over my promises, that tension between doubts and faith. I am going to use it as an invitation in the midst of your desperation. And I'm going to approach you and see if I can engage you to get you into the miraculous. You want to know me as the God that was like the God of your grandfather? Then I need to get you from behind the wine press as a survivalist, hiding out, being engaged in me being a deliverer of my people. Now, will you go not in the strength that I, you think that you need. Will you go in the strength that you have now and begin a journey with me and I'll do a miracle? How many are ready? So I've got questions and I say, God, with these questions that I have,
and with the wrestlings that I have in my heart. Can you use me to do the miraculous? And God said, in spite of your questions, I'm going to use the questions as a calling card to visit you and to call you into the miraculous. You want to know if I'm the same as I was yesterday? You want to know if I can do it today like I did back then, that I haven't ran out of gas? Hello? That I haven't developed old age as God, but I'm still as vibrant and as powerful as I was when I raised my son out of the grave. But all I need you to do is get in the game with me. Will you follow me? Will you engage with me? Now, the next thing that happened was that God began to get, after he selected Gideon and engaged him, he began to get him in what I call the right position. Because there's been, in the last decade, so much military activity in the United States or outside the United States, but with the U.S. military. With deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq and then all the countries around that area and, you know, guard units going out, reserve units going out. And, you know, we've all know people that are in the military that has been a part of deployments. And one of the terms, so all of a sudden a vocabulary that's not known to you begins to get more familiar to you. And one of the things that through the media or through people that you know that have been deployed you start coming up with military jargon. One of the things they talk about is they talk about pre-positioning assets. Because if there is a crisis in the world, you, you don't want to not be able to address the crisis. And so military planners, what they do is they say, now if this happens in this hemisphere of the world, and we see the potential for crisis that could happen in this nation or you know, there's weakness and turmoil and civil strife or whatever. What we want to do is we want to, we want to take friendly countries that are open to American presence and we want to pre-position assets just in case this difficult situation gets out of hand to where we can have a readiness of response that's within 24 hours, right? Instead of having a crisis and we say we can't get there for three months or for one month. And so I find that God does the same thing. He, he, he selects the right people. Thank you, my brother. I will enjoy this. Somebody will open it up for me. Got to be careful. He gave it to me ice cold. Which normally does the reverse on your voice. No, I think I'm good. A little raspy, but I'm good. <clears throat> Everybody help me clear. But God selects the person, and then he does this prepositioning. And again, just as sometimes there's this argumentation with God about, God, why are you wanting me? And uh, in spite of me, using me, how could you do it? And because I have these struggles and tension in my faith. But then we also argue with God of how he's prepositioned us. And one of the biggest questions we all have is, what's a nice guy like me doing in a place like this? What's a nice guy like me doing in a place like this? God in his wisdom always does a prepositioning of his people. And if you don't understand prepositioning, what you'll do is you'll begin to uh, misunderstand that God who knows everything from the beginning to the end, he's Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees, We like to say Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, but actually Jehovah Jireh means the God who sees and then prearranges provision to where when you get there, you already see that he's been ahead in your future. So God has this clarity of vision into our future and he knows what he's wanting to do. He knows the miracles that he's wanting to work. He's, he, he, he has cities in which he is going to just do powerful things, but he will preposition people in cities where it looks like this is a preacher's graveyard. He will put the saints of God in places that are so dark and so 
You know, we, we actually, when we arrive on the scene and God says, here's your orders, I'm sending you here. We show up into those places and we immediately begin to say to God, God, what did I do? That you would, you would sentence me to the backside of the kingdom of God. You're putting me on the shelf, you know. You're, you're, you're actually disqualified me by putting me out here in this desolate place. And God says, you don't understand that I'm planning a move. And I'm planning to move through you. And I'm not just going to have you go there and just sit there and endure in an environment. I'm sending you there as a history maker and as a change agent to begin to change the climate so the kingdom can come. And so instead of just sometimes complaining about central Indiana, which we have all had the tendency to do. Specifically, when you hear reports about God doing things in other places and we go, God, why couldn't you allow me to go there? Because it seems like they're having a good time in God there and I'm stuck here. We need to just settle back and say, God, you have a plan in mind. And so instead of me trying to uproot and reroute and uproot and reroute and uproot and reroute, which one of the main things about fruitfulness is you've got to get roots in the ground. A stick to where you go, not going to go anywhere. It's hot. The heat's pretty intense. Cold winters. Well, I tell you what, some of you guys that complain about the winters in Indiana... You didn't do a tour of duty 18 years in Wisconsin and Minnesota. You guys are wimps. <laughs> but I find myself, the winters here are nothing compared to what we endured up there. But I find myself going, Lord, send me. Send me south, Lord. Send me, send me south because the older I get, it's harder on me. And then I were thinking about what we went through in Wisconsin, where I've literally opened my door and went, <clears throat> And, and had a drift up there and trying to look over and see, I can't see the car. But God prepositions us, and he prepositions us in one place. And that's called the only place that God can use to do a miracle. Now, I want you to get this. It will always be the place of weakness. No, nobody wants to hear that. But it's true. The only place that God is trying to reposition his people in is a place where we become extremely voluntarily weak. Now, there are times where we go, okay, I feel weak because of the circumstances. I feel weak because of the environment. I feel weak because of people's reactions and responses to me. And I feel weak because we've got a lot of bad things going on. And I feel stretched. But there is another level of weakness that God is going to take the church through if we want to know the God who delivered the people out of Egypt. How many of you would like to know the God who delivered people out of Egypt? And we as the church in America are on a journey where God is taking us to a place of real weakness. And we don't like it. Because we liked it when we had a moral majority. And we could, we could uh, call politicians and say, listen, we will address you at the voting box if you don't vote our way. And now they go, we don't care. Because there's been a, she a sea shift in the, the, the demographics in our country and we are becoming a marginalized group that we say we want to still have a voice, but they don't want to listen to our voice. And so the, the church in America is going to have to learn to get comfortable with what it's like to be weak in regards to what I call the strength of the arm of the flesh. Because we used to be able to intimidate some people. We used to be able to manipulate some people. We used to be able to get our way. 
But we were never weak enough for God to do miracles. We just produced the outcomes of what men could produce. We got a vote, but it never would transform society. Come on now, I'm preaching good whether you want to know it or not. We, we, could, we could get enough to vote, to get a vote across, but it wouldn't transform or change anything. It would just antagonize those that we opposed. It would just deepen the division and the divide. And so now the church is in a place where God has put us in a place of vulnerability and weakness. And we better get comfortable with it because you go, well, this has not been God's will. I say God has wanted to get the church into a place of such desperate dependence and weakness back upon Him. Somebody was debating with me the other day, and I finally just, we had to have our talk and talk it out. But they were talking about, you know, because there, there are so many voices going on right now in the world and in the church about the future and the outcome of our country and, and the economy and all these things like this. And the, this brother that I deeply love, he, you know, he's, he's wanting to press the church into, you know, buying and stockpiling food and developing a survivalist mentality. And if God speaks to you to do that, Get some canned goods up, you know, store up some seeds, do whatever God's telling you to do. But finally, I just told him, I said, brother, what do you want us to do as a leadership? And, you know, he never expect me to just say, tell me what you want me to do. You feel this strongly in your heart. Tell me what you want me to do. And so he goes, well, we got to do this and this and this. And I said, brother, does that mean you want us to spend what we're doing right now in missions and being missional and releasing money towards ministry and pastors? And I said, we got to still pay the electric bill of the church. And so I just said to him, what do you want us to do? And he goes, no, I don't want you to spend anything. And I said, well, the amount of budget that we could allocate to that if it's the worst case scenario, even if we had two years to prepare, probably all the food would be gone in a week or two. All elaborate pre preparation of what we could do would be gone. If we're actually trying to feed cities, it'd be gone in a week or two. And he goes, well, what do you think we should do? I said, the greatest thing that I think God is going to have to speak to the church to prepare for these days is we've got to get back on our face yes. and develop a hearing heart because I believe the greatest advantage we'll have in that day is the ability to hear the voice of God Almighty. Yeah. And life and death will be determined by the church's preparation. So I said the preparation is not necessarily... And I said, if God speaks to you to do something physical, obey his voice. But the biggest thing that can be done now is spiritual preparation. Because I tell my kids about marriage. I always tell them now, I said, you know what? You guys are going to be getting married in a few years. Right now, be preparing yourself to be the best husband you can be. I said, because it's hard to put on a roof on your house in the middle of a hurricane. So right now, dig the foundations deep, frame the wall straight, put a roof on, get prepared to be the best husband you can be and understand you can trust God that right now, the mate that God has chosen for you, God's going to do the same thing to get them ready for you. But prepare, prepare, prepare. But it's not a reaction in fear, which would cause us maybe to put our finger in a dike. Hello? And think that, well, we are trying to stem the storm. Prepare yourself spiritually. To where no matter what, you hear the voice of God. Now, this is another thing. Because we are people that do not like to be positioned in weakness. God is going to take us to a place where we're going to be willing to voluntarily choose to be weak. Now, some of you are saying, well, I can see if God puts me in a circumstance where it stretches me and I'm weak, that's okay. But I'm not going to choose to voluntarily be weak. Then you'll never work miracles. You go, well, explain that to me. Well, Gideon was in this process, right? He had the right personality. God engaged him. God positioned him. But then in that positioning... Where God was positioning in weakness, God did not take him from strength to strength. 
He went out. He blew, had the guys sound the shofar, gather in the tribes that respond. 30,000 men said yes. And Gideon's looking at this. This is a confirmation. God is up to something big. God is going to do something powerful. And he's going to use me. I am going to be this mighty man of war. 30,000 men show up and he begins to kind of get a sense that maybe something good's going to happen. And I, I ended the message last week and we're not going to take time to go there, but I'll just paraphrase it. There was this statement in Judges where it said they blew the trumpet and it said the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. But in the Hebrew, it actually says that God clothed himself with Gideon. Not Gideon clothed himself with God. It was like God took him like a garment out of a wardrobe and said, Gideon, I'm going to get right up on the inside of you and I'm going to put my arms down through your sleeves and I'm going to button you up around me and they're going to think they're dealing with the barley farmer who grinds his meal in a wine press, but the Midianites are going to deal with me in you. I like that. And I believe that when he sounded that trumpet and began to obey God, that he could feel God come up within him. There was an anointing that was there. And so he goes, well, I still got some questions. I don't know how it's going to be done. I don't know what the strategy is, but this is a good start. And God says, yes, it is a good start. Now let's get started. And then you know the story. He said, okay, I'm going to have you ask these guys some questions. And he says, any of you have any fear? Any of you are afraid to die in battle or to fight in battle? If you do, I want you to go home. Now, how would you like to be an officer trying to lead an army and God gives you a grid and asking questions? And the first question that you're to ask these guys is not what are your skills? You know, how are we going to train? We're going to take some guys that may be afraid, but we're going to turn them into warriors. God says, if they are afraid, I want you to send them home. And there is a massive reduction of forces immediately. How do you think he felt when he saw these guys start? His, his army that had gathered and he was found, man, we're on a roll. We got something going to all of a sudden see the majority of it walk away. Two-thirds of it walk away. And then God says, I'm not done yet. There are still too many. Because God specifically said to him, he said, if I deliver the people now, even with the remaining army that's left, they'll say that you did it. See, if you want to be a miracle, you've got to get accustomed with the thought that you're not going to get any credit for it. That it's not going to be about you. And some of you got to get over that because you want it to still be about a lot about God, but a little bit about me too. Right? And God just got in Gideon's face. He goes, there's still too many because I'm not going to let you get the credit. This is not going to be about your generalship. Because even though I've, I've declared over you you're a courageous warrior, you still know who you are and where you've come from. You're a barley farmer. You're a survivalist. You didn't think there was going to be any deliverance. Matter of fact, you doubted my capabilities. You were doubting the Bible stories that grandma and grandpa told you. And I encountered you and we had to talk about your questions. Remember? And so God says, now I want you to bring them down there and I want you to have them drink. And then they went down from thousands down to how many? Now they're down to hundreds. 300 men are left standing. And a lot of us stop the Bible story there, but it still keeps going. God says, I'm going to take you from weakness, from strength to weakness, to even greater weakness. And to finally you feel like, okay, 300 guys. But maybe in our own thought, we're going to, you know, we had a massive army. And I was thinking about three divisions, maybe 10,000 in each division and you know, but now we're down to what we're calling special forces. We've, we've got a SEAL team on steroids, right? And if we train long and hard enough, we could conduct a guerrilla warfare on the Midians long enough to fatigue them 
to where every time they come into here to raid, we could take and, and draw, withdraw our pound of flesh and make them pay. And so he's thinking about a guerrilla campaign, you know, that we're going to be mean, lean Gideon's company, Gideon's army, the 300, and we're going to come in quick and fast and strike and then withdraw, and they're not going to know what hit them. God says, now this isn't going to be about the skill of 300 warriors. Now, I always envision these Bible stories uh, when I read them, I always think that it's in the context of kind of like a British drama. So everybody has a British accent. You know, it's just like the Bible, the Bible that you guys, uh, the, the new miniseries they had. It's amazing when you watch this. It just reconfirms our prejudice that the guys in the Bible, they spoke in English, you know, with an English accent. And so I just imagine the 300 standing up there, you know, Gideon tells them to get in line in rows, you know, and then he tells them, he says, I want you to collect all their weapons. You know, Gideon general goes, God's killing me. He's killing me. He's killing me. He, he, he says to collect all the weapons. And so I just think of this, you know, British sergeant walking up to this platoon of guys and him walking up there and saying in an English accent, Give me your sword. Give me your shield. The spear too. The spear too. Come on. The knife out of the socks. Knife out of the socks. No weapon. And then they're, go they're looking at each other and they're, they're, you know, they're wondering why they've been chosen to die, right? <laughs> and the one guy turns to the other guy as they're, you know, taking all of the weapons out of their belts and laying, stacking up of the arms. They're wondering, you know, why? Why me? And the one guy looks to the other and he goes, didn't I pay my tithes? Yeah. I had good church attendance. Why me? Why do I have to go on the suicide mission? You know, I just kind of visualize it that way. Yeah, I was nice to get in. He blew the trumpet. I came running. Why me? Come on, guys. Just one small sword, just a dagger, just a small dagger for self-protection, please. And then I, then I envision. <laughs> no. <laughs> then I imagine a wagon rolling up some carts covered with a tarp. And then the sergeant goes, Corporal, distribute the tools, you know. And here, they're taking away the spear, and then he, here's your pot. And the guy goes, what? I get a pot? What am I, what am I supposed to do with a pot? <laughs> Great hygiene in this army. I want you to know that. And so they get, give him a pot. And then the next guy, you know, there's, there's a, a torch, and they're going with a torch and a pot. And he goes, we're planning on attacking. Don't you go, this doesn't make sense. Every man that took a pot that day was saying, I'm voluntarily placing myself in weakness. Elijah on Mount Carmel, he was outnumbered. Hundreds of false prophets. The crowd was against him. They were worshipers of Baal. They had left God. They were in a backslidden, hard-hearted condition. A wicked king was just waiting for the failure to where he could execute him. I would call that a pretty pressurized day. And he begins to build an altar. And we would have think that after all day long, building the altar, that would have been enough. And he said, no, guys, dig ditches around it. And they go, what in the world? We're talking about fire. Why ditches? And he says, I want you to bring water and put on that wood. How many of you are willing to put water on your wood when you're trying to start a fire. You see how God says, weakness is one thing, but voluntary weakness that takes it to the place of the weakest of the weak. Where God, unless you do it, it won't be done. This is where the church is right now. We, we are willing to say, God, I'll be a little vulnerable. 
I'll be a little weak. You know, I'll let you stretch me. I'll obey you. I'll give a little more. I'll serve a little more. I'll do a little bit more. And God's saying, no, that is not enough to do a miracle. I need you to wet the wood. I need you to give me the last meal that the little widow lady, when Elijah approached her, she said, all we have is one last meal and I'm going to feed it to my son and we're going to die. We're packing it in. I'm going to try to give him a last supper to comfort him in his dying pangs of hunger. And he said, you give me that first. Can you imagine the audacity? You know, sometimes because we know the end of the story, but sometimes I like to go, if Elijah didn't know the outcome, because I want to think like a miracle worker. I go, if Elijah didn't know the outcome of that, what kind of a humility does it take to a man of God to ask a widow for her food out of her cupboard with a starving child? You go, no, that's boldness. No, it requires weakness and humility. Say, I've heard from God here. And if you will give me that little meal and that little oil and I will eat it first as a transaction of faith, God's going to feed you through this entire famine. Now that requires weakness, people. And I even wonder, even now where I'm at, because there is this thing in me that says I could never ask somebody to do that. Yeah, just what Eric said. We would believe that God would never even ask such a thing. And I know I'm going long today, but I'm going to drive this thing home. We've got to get to a point where we are just so willing to voluntarily be weak and say, I will be a fool for you. No matter what it looks like, and no matter if the outcome is guaranteed, it does not matter. The matter is obedience to your voice, and I'm willing to go there. And so these guys got stripped down. They were disarmed and they were given pots and torches. And then the last part of the story that I love. And if those of you that have been on prophetic teams and done dream interpretation, I've always been stumped at this because you always talk about patterns and symbols and types. And, you know, you try to get those patterns of types and you can interpret your dream. And so Gideon, he's still needing confirmation and God's willing to give it to him. But he's willing to give up and to let go and continue to be vulnerable, continue to be weak. But he's needing confirmation. And so he goes down the outside the Midian camp before they launch the attack. He's needing just a little more assurance from God. And he's listening at a campfire conversation of the Midianites, raiders, and soldiers. And this guy said, I had a dream. And the guy said, what is the dream? He said, well, I saw this big barley loaf rolling down a hill and it came into our camp and knocked the tents down. And the guy goes, well, what was that? He said, this is none other than Gideon. Now, let's go to the prophetic team and let's submit this dream. And if you and I were trying to interpret that dream, would you guys ever think that a loaf of bread rolling into tents was Gideon? You know, I would say, come on, give me some type of symbol that confirms to me. But it's because we don't know how Gideon viewed himself. You know what Gideon viewed himself as? Even though he had gone through this process and God had said, you're the mighty warrior. You're the valiant, courageous warrior. And you will go in my strength and deliver my people. Even to that point, he was still seeing himself as this little survivalist grinding out the barley wheat. And when he heard that guy said, I see a barley loaf coming down the hill. He said, that's me. I finally get it. Even in our weakness, 300 people with pots and torches. God's going to use me. But I love what they shouted, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. God, we know, when they broke those vessels and the fire and the oil combined and the flashes of light and the trumpets blaring, 
God began to move among those enemies and created fear and confusion. And can you imagine there that day? They have nothing. There's this panic and confusion. They're running, and they don't know who the enemy is, so they start fighting against each other. Can you imagine the guys just standing there with these broken pots and the oil and the flash, and they're just shouting, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And the more it gets confusing, they're yelling louder, the sword of the Lord, you know, because they know they're not going to die. This was not a suicide mission. There, ah, yeah, this, because I'm sure the first time they went, sword of the Lord and a Gideon. Here we go. Okay. It's going to be all over in 30 seconds, Lord. Here I come to you, Lord. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, but I guarantee you, as they begin to see, God set in his ambushments in the camp. Their voice began to raise louder and louder. Can you imagine the exhilaration? They were all saying, it's a miracle. 300 of us. 300 of us with pots and oil and a little bit of fire with the voice of the Lord on our lips and on our mouth has brought a great deliverance. It's a miracle. Everybody say it's a miracle. It's going to be a miracle. How weak are you willing to go? How vulnerable? How much are you willing to wrestle with God about your questions and saying, all right, I've doubted, I've had some questions, but the questions I'm going to allow it to be an invitation to take me there to a place where I see your power and your glory. I want you to pray with me. Father, I thank you for the word of the Lord. I thank you for the promises of the word of God. I thank you that you've exalted your word above your name. The reputation of your name, the glory of your fame is staked upon the veracity of those promises. You are not a man that you have lied to us, deceived us, misled us, over-promised and under-fulfilled. But this morning, you're awaiting for a people to rise. Arise in weakness. Rise in vulnerability. That will say, go ahead, we prepared the altar. Bring the water. Here we are an army, but we're going to lay down our own strengths. We'll take up the oil and the fire. God, I pray that in each one of our lives, you know where you're wanting to take us. And God, I ask God that you would place us and position us to get us to participate with you to do what you want to do in central Indiana. And I want everybody to stand with me because I want us to have a time of prayer over Indiana. Lord, in this hour, we feel very weak when it comes to revival when it comes to what you are wanting to do. And we see it, we see it in part, but we say, how can we get there, God? So many mountains, so many difficulties, so many enemies, so many words against us, so much confusion, so many agendas. But God, yet I hear your voice saying, I have promised you that I would do a work in your day which will be remembered, saith the Lord. Will be remembered by other generations that will hear the story, says the Lord, of what I did in your day. In a day in which it seemed that it would be impossible to do. But I did preposition a people that were tested in their faith and in their patience to believe. But yet I cultivated them, not in the strength of their flesh, but a weakness in their flesh, but a strength in my spirit, says God. 
And they were willing to yield themselves to me in that vulnerability. And therefore I began to work in them and work through them. And my glory was revealed out of them. And therefore revival did come, saith the Lord, to the cities in which they were contending for their salvation. So have hope in me, my people. That I will do what I have promised to do if you will be what I need you to be unto me. And so, Father, we just say yes to you. We say, God, bring to bear your power through our weakness. And we ask it. And, And right now, I just encourage everybody, just if you will... Agree with me, but also begin to pray for this region that that which God has ordained and determined will come to pass. Will you engage with me this morning? Do it, God. And I want you to intercede over yourself that you're you're willing to say, okay, I'm willing to let go of that crutch and I'm willing to let go of plan B if plan A doesn't work out. I'm willing to just say, God, do it. Even if I think that it may not work out, I'm willing to just say, God, whether in life or death, I'm just willing to be unto you what you need me to be. Do it in me. In Jesus' name. We say it in Jesus' name. The name above every name. We seal our prayer with that name that has power. We say, God, let there be the benediction and the endorsement of heaven. When we say in the name of Jesus, we say, God, stamp it with your endorsement. When we make a covenant before you and saying, we will be willing to obey. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen and amen. Thank you, Lord. We say yes, don't we, church? We say yes. And I challenge you as you go through your week, let his word, let his word come alive in you. And may you obey him and surrender to voluntary weakness in the name of Jesus. May you go forth. Let this word change you. Go to the website and listen to it again and allow it to get deep inside of you as we seek voluntary weakness. Because I don't know about you, I don't have it in me, but I have it in him. In Jesus' name, go and be blessed. We love you. Amen. Have a great week.